Hello and welcome to a special episode of the History of India podcast called The Ignorance of Foreign Kings. So this is the second of our special episodes not following the kingdoms that rule Pataliputra but following events elsewhere in ancient history. This week we look at Alexander the Great. There's a whole podcast about this fellow by Ray Harris and Cameron Riley. I've not actually got around to listening to it yet, um, though my wife and I really enjoyed Cam's Napoleon podcast, which we listened to going around Europe and France. Um, and I've deeply admired Ray's World War II podcast um, for, for a long time. There's a link to the, uh, the, the, the Alexander the Great uh, podcast on the website. I suspect that I've, I've probably got different views on Alexander from them. Because but for somebody who's following Alexander's life, um, it, it's almost impossible not to be caught up in the adventure of it all. The boldness. Alexander's kind of admirable in many ways, in the ways he kind of pushes you way out of your comfort zone, out of anything you'd be willing to do yourself. Alexander seems to deserve the epithet, the great, but for someone who, who's following Indian history and the story of India, Alexander's this invader who comes in from outside and he's got no cause, he's got no reason to be there. And he simply murders the people who are defending their lands honourably. Men, women, children die because he's there. Anyway, I don't want to tread on another podcast's episodes and I'm not going to say too much about Alexander's life as a, as a result. In any case, I'm slightly out of my depth with that stuff. In fact, I'm going to focus on just three stories from Alexander's campaign in India um, and give an Indian perspective on them. And then I'm going to look at what, if anything, he left behind in India. What was his legacy? So we're going to be using Indian names by and large and be talking about the events most relevant for India. And that means that for the most part, we're going to glide over and completely ignore the soap opera that, that plays out between Alexander and his generals. This is not really the story of Alexander in India, it's more the story of India with Alexander in it. Two centuries after Cyrus the Great founded the world's biggest empire, Philip was king of Macedon. Macedon was a relatively small kingdom the north of Greece, and he had a son called Alexander, and he sent him off to be educated by Aristotle, the greatest philosopher and scientist of the area. And at age 20, Alexander inherited the throne, and with it a highly trained and disciplined army. The army had phalanxes, as close formations of spears and shields, it had catapults, it had light cavalry, and it was a professional disciplined army. Alexander takes this army and moves out to invade the Persian Empire. Remember the Persian Empire under Cyrus had unified the three great old kingdoms, Lydia, which is roughly modern-day Turkey, Media, which is roughly modern-day Iran, and Babylon, roughly Iraq. And more had been added since then, Egypt, Bactria, that's Afghanistan, India, in terms of the Indus Valley. Basically, this is a huge, mighty empire. But by this time, a couple of centuries later, it's under severe tension. It's being pulled in different directions. It's like a, a piece of paper pulled sharp, ready to be cut apart. 
and the Persian emperor who inherited all this mess was called Darius III. And he gathered up his forces to oppose Alexander, and they fought at the Battle of Isis, where Darius III was soundly beaten and in fact fled the field of battle, and his wife and children were captured. By the way, this inspires two of the greatest paintings of all time. Uh, my, my, my personal favourite painting in the entire world is the, the picture of Darius fleeing the battle by Albert Aldorfer. Uh, and it has this beautiful uh, sky above it with the sun and the, and the moon, the light and dark sides of the sky, kind of fighting each other up in the sky as uh, Alexander and the Persian forces fight down below. It's in Munich. If you ever get a chance to see it, please go and see it. It's worth it. If you're in the UK and you can't make it to Munich, try the National Gallery. There there's a, a, a painting of Alexander meeting the family of Darius, and the story goes that they begged for mercy and he was a benevolent to them and very kind to them. Uh, the painting's by Paolo Vernosi. Uh, it's excellent. In some ways it's disgusting, uh, the message it portrays, but it's carried off uh, with, with extreme brilliance. It's huge, you can't miss it. Anyway, anyway, back to the story. Another few battles and, of, of Alexander beating Darius, and he takes control of the Persian capital. And there's a cracker of a story here about what happens next when Alexander plays football, but I'll leave it for Cam and Ray's podcast. Anyway, this all happens in about 330 BC, and this is the last year of Mahapadmananda's reign. And then Alexander takes his forces and, and heads into Afghanistan. He heads up through the south, that's Helmand, uh, he founds Kandahar as a city, which is tremendously important for uh, later medieval Indian history. And he conquers Kabul. And he's getting reinforcements at this time from Macedonia, Greece, uh, and also uh, reinforcements from more local areas, Iranians, Scythians. And he's gathering his forces there, and he's finally ready to invade India. Finally, in the spring of 327 BC, Alexander launches himself into India. And our first story is the story of how Alexander came to be escorted safely into India by one of its kings, without even a battle having been fought. So Alexander, before he goes into India, splits his army into two columns. And one he gives, you know, he gives to Hephaestion, his general. So Hephaestion's in charge of this column, and Hephaestion takes it through the Khyber Pass, while Alexander goes off elsewhere. And Hephaestion's waiting for Alexander, sitting on the near side of the banks of the Indus, waiting so that they can cross together into India. And on the other side of the river is the first major Indian state, Gandhara, and its capital city, Taxila. Uh, Taxila is actually pronounced Takshashila in Sanskrit, but I'm going to go with the modern pronunciation, Taxila. Taxila is the great city of Indian learning, remember. That's where the kings and the generals have sent their sons to be, to be taught and raised for generations. Well, whilst Hephaestion is waiting on the banks of the Indus, the king of Taxila does something very odd. He sends a message to Hephaestion saying, What do you want me to do? I can either submit to you and meet you as a, as a private citizen and give my kingdom over to you, or I can submit to you and meet you as a king. Um, that's quite a kind of kowtowing note to send before even a battle's been fought. And, in fact, the king of Taxila even sends grain for Hephaestion's troops. But he refuses to go himself. He's waiting for Alexander to turn up. 
Well, pretty soon Alexander arrives, and the king of Texila prepares his army and sets out to meet Alexander on the banks of the Indus. He crosses over the Indus, and they advance on the Greek position. And Alexander gathers his army and advances on the oncoming Indian army. The Greeks don't seem to realise that Taxila's friendly, they don't really know who he is, and it could have turned very ugly very easily. But Taxila, realising that there's two armies closing on one another um, and that they're about to fight, stops his army and spurs his force forward, running out alone towards the Greek army. And Alexander, probably not knowing what is going on, but always up for adventure, stops his army and rides out himself to meet Taxila. So Alexander and Taxila meet in the middle between these two armies, and Taxila lays down his kingdom to Alexander. Alexander graciously gives it back, and gives all the gifts that he's been brought back to with interest. And together they cross the river. Taxila actually asks permission to go first, right? making sure that it's okay for him to go on his throne first. Well, this is all very strange. Why did the king of Taxila just lay down his kingdom at Alexander's feet? And why all the grovelling? According to the Greek and Roman sources, Taxila was just scared. He had heard of Alexander's reputation. He'd heard how Alexander had thrashed Darius III, had taken over the whole of the Persian Empire. And he was scared. So he came and, uh, to, just to avoid a thrashing, um, gave Alexander his kingdom. Maybe that's not the case. After all, Taxila kept his kingdom. And after all of this groveling to Alexander, Taxila lays his cards on the table. He says to Alexander that there's a king in a neighbouring province just over the next river. And he and I, we've been at war for quite a long time. Alexander, can you help me beat him? Can you give me, with your, with your soldiers, uh, enough, enough of an army to go and, and beat this king once and for all? Well, this is the beginning of our second story. So Alexander is in Taxila, and he's waiting to cross the next river, which is the Jhelum. And the king on the other side of the river is called Porus in, in the Greek texts. And he's probably called that because he's the king of the Puru tribe. The Puru tribe are uh, a result of a union between the Kuru and the Bharata tribes. Both of those tribes have had very brief cameos in earlier podcasts. But the ancestry doesn't really matter. Porus runs a small kingdom by Indian standards, but he's got a huge army by Mediterranean standards. Many tens of thousands of foot soldiers, thousands of chariots, maybe as many as a hundred elephants. The king of Taxila may want to invade uh, with Alexander, but Alexander's had an easy ride so far, and he's going to try and push his luck and see if he can conquer more of India without having to come into battle. He's, Alexander wants to see if he can get by just on the fear of his reputation alone. So he wants to beat Porus without facing him in battle, so he sends out a messenger uh, to see if Porus will give up just like Taxila did. And the message sent with the messenger says, Pay tribute to me, Alexander. And meet me at the river with your army. Well, Porus uh, gets the message and he sends back a response, full of self-assured wit. I'll do the second thing, but not the first. I'll meet you at the river with my army, but I'm not going to pay tribute to you. 
War is coming. Three armies come to the river Jelum. On one side, Taxila and Alexander. On the other side, Porus. And pretty soon there are some skirmishes on river islands as both sides uh, allow people to swim over and have little fights on the islands. And there are some feints and some trickery. And Alexander's the, the cleverest and trickiest of the lot, at least according to the Greek sources. Um, he does things like uh, uh, put his tent up in one place and then take his army elsewhere. And by Alexander's trickery and, and with, a, with a bit of luck from the weather, Porus suffers a, de a decisive defeat. We're told that 20,000 Indian foot soldiers died, 3,000 cavalry, and two of Porus's own sons. I'm not going to get into the details about the battle. I'm going to leave that for the Alexander podcast. But the story I want to tell comes right at the end of the battle. So Porus's army is routed. Uh, all around him, soldiers are fleeing. His elephants are run in, running amok because their mahouts are killed, their, their drivers are killed. But he refuses to flee. Porus rides an elephant into battle, and he's on top of that elephant, and he, com he, he commands his mahout uh, to ride his elephant into the enemy lines further. And he starts plucking up javelins that are in a pile next to him and throwing them with all his force down into the enemy ranks. But this leaves him utterly exposed, and pretty soon he's wounded. He's hit in the shoulder with an arrow, perhaps as many as, as nine times he's hit. And his blood's more on the outside of him than inside. And his strength withdraws. His arms fall to his side, his hand still gripping the javelin, but now he's too weak to throw it anymore. And the mahout looks back and sees that his king is wounded, and at last turns his elephant around from the Greek lines and flees. Alexander wants to take this king alive. He's impressed. So he sends the king of Taxila to talk, uh, to talk Porus down, to, to get him to surrender and not have to be killed. This is a, a, a kind of bad idea. Right? Taxila and Porus are enemies. And Porus uh, is slouched over the elephant. But as Taxila approaches, he looks up and sees him. He says, I recognise that man, betrayer of his friend and betrayer of his countrymen. Looking down at his hand, Porus sees that he's still gripping a javelin. So he finds the strength somehow to pick up the javelin and throw it towards Taxila, but Taxila quickly dodges out of range. Well, that didn't work too well. So Alexander uh, finds uh, another person to send, this time an old friend of Porus's. Uh, and this old friend comes up and, and shouts to him, pleads with him to stop and surrender. And Porus listens to his friend and finally relents. He shouts to the mahout and the elephant stops and it kneels and the king slides off. And then he says, take me to Alexander. And according to one account, maybe the best account, he strides over to Alexander, despite his wounds, not as a defeated man, but head held high. And Alexander's impressed with the whole thing, with the whole, with the whole package, with this guy who threw himself into battle when all was lost, with the guy who carries his head high when he's beaten. And he says to him, what treatment would you like? And Porus replies, treat me, O Alexander, in a kingly way. And Alexander says, no, 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 really, I'm really impressed with you. Demand what is pleasing to you and I'll give it to you. And Porus simply responds, Everything is included in what I've already said. 
treat me in a kingly way. Alexander is just utterly impressed by this guy. And he restores Porus to his kingdom. And in fact, in the end, he gives Porus not only his kingdom back, but some more republics that Alexander conquers later. Porus's boldness has saved him. Spare a thought in all this for poor old Taxila. Taxila's given up his kingdom, given up his sovereignty for a chance of getting his old enemy, Porus. And now Taxila's gone into battle with his army, fought, his men have died, and he's won. But Porus is left still in charge. His old enemy is even more powerful than before. That must have been very frustrating. Well, Alexander soon decides that he's not going to go any further into India. Now he's standing at the Bees, which is almost at the end of the Punjab. And actually, we've heard this story already, so I'm just going to very briefly recant it. Alexander asks the local king, what comes next? What's after this river? And the king responds, well, after this river full of rocks, there are 12 days journey through the desert wastes. And then there's this Nanda king who's got 20,000 cavalry, 200,000 infantry, 2,000 chariots, and 3,000 elephants guarding the roads. And Alexander's mind is filled with various anxieties. There's an important point here for understanding Alexander in India. For Alexander and the historians who wrote about him, Porus is a really big deal. He's got a huge army. But for ancient Indians, on the Indian stage, Porus is a nobody. His army is tiny. His state is too insignificant even to be mentioned. Yeah, that's right. Neither Porus nor his kingdom get even a mention in ancient Indian literature. Well, there's a, an old, a very old theory that Porus is the, is the same as Shurasena, who's the, the founder of a Mahapadma of the name Shurasena. That doesn't fit for a huge number of reasons, not least that he's 700 years and 700 miles out of place. Um, but quite, just possibly he was uh, a king of the Shurasena tribe, Shurasena Mahapadma. If he is such a king, then he's a king we've never heard of. Anyway, Alexander or his army chose not to face the big players of northern India. They only face very minor kings. Instead, Alexander turns away downstream and avoids a confrontation with the major players. If I were in a provocative mood, I might say that in terms of military success in India, Alexander did no better than dozens of other petty Indian kings, which is to say he beat some other petty Indian kings, and that too with a lot of local help. Anyway, it's on that trip to the sea with Alexander's army down the Indus River, that we get our final story about Alexander. Alexander comes across a republic, which he calls the Maloi. Who are the Maloi? Probably, we've already met them. Uh, often they're identified with one of the Mahajanapada, the Malavas, though actually the name seems a bit of a stretch. More likely, I think, it's the Malas. This is a Mahajanapada, which is closely aligned with Kasala and is taken over by Ajatashatru. Uh, though that makes them in the wrong place. Um, they, the, the Malas are actually in, in, in the Mugden homelands or very nearby, um, whereas these Mala are uh, uh, kind of down south of the Indus, which is all the way over to the west. 
Perhaps these are Western relations of the Malas who Ajitashatru conquered. At any rate, we have a republic. And what we know about republics in ancient India is that they are militarily very powerful. And this republic and its allies are said to have 90,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 horsemen and 900 chariots. But these are people who aren't just hired to fight. They're not mercenaries. They're instead determined warriors, determined to protect the land that they themselves rule. They have a lot to lose. And the Greek and Roman chroniclers of Alexander say that this is the most warlike of the nations of India. So Alexander is coming down the river into Maloy territory and he soon enough uh, comes to a battle. And strangely enough, in this battle, all of the... All of the Indians flee. It's not really clear why. And Alexander comes to a city. A city of the Maloy. And a sage approaches Alexander and tells him, no, no, um, don't lay siege now. Wait a bit, because if you attack now, your life will be in danger. And Alexander just has no patience for this. You know, brushes him off with annoyance. He says, look, I'm at work here, man. I didn't disturb you when you're at, when you're at work, did I? So leave me alone. Stop with this nonsense. And just at that very moment, Alexander picks up a ladder, puts it up against the wall of the city and starts to climb into the wall. So Alexander's leading the assault into this city, but the wall is, is very cleverly designed. Even if you get to the top, there's a parapet stopping you getting over and into the city. So Alexander's gone first. He's up there alone. And the Maloy archers are targeting him from the towers. His men are scrambling up to get with him and defend him. But in the scramble, so many people get on the ladder that, they, that it collapses. And Alexander is up there alone. He's vulnerable. But instead of jumping back down and being rescued by his men on the outside of the city, he jumps over the parapet the other way into the city so that he's surrounded entirely by the enemy. And he finds himself in the city, kind of landed in the shelter of this ancient tree. So he picks himself up, he puts his back to the tree trunk, and he starts to defend himself against attackers. Arrows are flying off the branches. People are coming in, but Alexander's killing them. But pretty soon, an archer finds a clear shot through the branches, and he hits Alexander in the right side. He rushes in, this archer, to finish Alexander off, but Alexander finds the strength to raise his sword and kill the archer as he approaches. But with that, Alexander is pretty much finished. Meanwhile, Alexander's men have seen him jump over the wall. And maybe they've heard that he's been hit and is dead. And they are furious. They grab these pickaxes and they start to break through the wall, tunnel through it. And pretty soon in their fury, they've broken through and they flood in and they are angry. They murder everyone that they see. Right? The people of the city are fleeing the invaders. But the, the Greek soldiers murder them. Soldier and civilian, man and woman, adult and child, all in the city are killed. Meanwhile, Alexander has been saved by some people who have managed to follow him over the wall, and he's okay. But all around him, his men continue the massacre until their anger is fully exhausted. So this city's been attacked without any obvious cause by a mad young foreigner whose men have massacred its children and left the city running with blood. And the mad young foreigner, wounded perhaps fatally, claims a glorious victory and then staggers on downstream.
And that's the way it's told from the Greek side. It's not very pretty, even from Alexander's own defenders, own chroniclers. Neither Alexander nor his men come out looking very good. And you have to wonder how the Mullahs would have told it. Actually, that's an important historical point. We don't have an account from the Malas or the Maloi. In fact, we don't have any Indian counts at all. The stories we know of Alexander in India are entirely told by Alexander's chroniclers, by Greeks and Romans. There's not a single mention of Alexander, or Sikanda, which is the local version, anywhere in the ancient Indian texts. There's not even the beginning of an allusion to it. Alexander left almost no trace in India. He came, he killed, he left nothing much lasting and nothing good. To illustrate why this is the case, we can look at what happened to Porus when Alexander left India. So as Alexander's leaving, he, he gives Porus near autonomy over his old kingdom and also some of the surrounding area. Alexander leaves garrisons of his men throughout India, often garrisons of his wounded men, um, but they leave Porus alone. And in fact, many of them just leave the area as soon as Alexander's back is turned, as soon as Alexander's moved on. These Greek, uh, uh, Rome, Greek, Greek settlers kind of leave as soon as they can. Alexander left a Greek called Philip in Taxila. But even as Alexander's leaving India, Philip is murdered. So Alexander um, passes on the post to uh, a Thracian general of his called Eudemos. Alexander uh, goes, leaves India and dies two years later. And then his empire is divided up by his generals. But India is actually left in the hands of Indian kings largely, presumably because India just was never really in Alexander's hands. He never, he never really had enough control over India for it to be considered a reward for a general to be given control over those lands. And Alexander's generals start fighting one another almost as soon as Alexander's dead. And Eudemos, who's now the, the Greek general in, in, in Taxila, kills Porus and takes his elephants and marches them west to fight another one of the generals uh, of Alexander. And Eudemos is never to return because in his absence, the next Indian dynasty, perhaps with the support of the people who are kind of fed up with all of this, takes the kingdom, uh, takes Porus's kingdom. But that's the story for a, another podcast. In summary then, Alexander had entered India in 327 BC. And within 10 years, there was no Greek power left anywhere in India. Alexander left no power. He left almost no language. All he left were a few scattered settlements, half abandoned and soon absorbed into the Indian world. So Alexander did change the world, but it wasn't the Indian world. It was the world next to India. He had defeated Persia. And in its place now was a Greek dynasty, the Seleucids. They controlled the territory right next door to India. And they are going to have a very significant influence on Indian history. So if Alexander's had a big impact on Indian history, it's simply by conquering Darius III, by conquering the Persians, and not because of his sojourn into India. I've given Alexander a, a very short shrift here. I've covered his reign in just three 
uh, short stories. Much more has been written. Much more uh, I could have said. But I've actually already given him a vastly disproportionate amount of attention, given his influence on the Indian stage. Every week we read a bit from the primary sources. This week we're reading from Quintus Curtius, who is a Roman historian of the first century AD, writing a history of Alexander the Great. And Quintus Curtius has just described the climate and geography of India as he understands it. And he's got it badly wrong. And now he's going to go and describe uh, the Indian people, the Indian character. And once again, he's going to get it laughably wrong. Here we go. There, i.e. in India, as everywhere, the situation of the country affects the character of the men. They veil their bodies in linen robes as far as the feet. They clothe their feet in sandals and bind their heads in linen and precious stones hang from their ears. Those who are eminent among the people for high birth or wealth adorn their wrists also and arms with gold. They comb their hair more frequently than they shear it. The chin is always unshorn. The rest of the skin of the face they shave close so that it appears smooth. Nevertheless, the luxury of their kings, which they themselves call magnificence, surpasses the vices of all other nations. When the king allows himself to be seen in public, his attendants carry before him silver pans of incense and fill with perfumes the whole road of which he has decided to be born. He reclines in a golden litter, adorned with pearls hanging on every side. The linen robe which he wears is embroidered with gold and purple. And on, and on, and you get the picture. Okay, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks again to my friend Cam Chadder for the music. And again, if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snehal Sidhu Memorial Fund. Details are on the website. Thanks. Take care.